welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the things that uh, maybe has been your experience, uh, as has been mine over the last reading the news a lot more. Uh, maybe some of you are always news people, but one of the dynamics you may have noticed is this whole bad news, good news thing. And definitely a lot of people are feeling, understandably, that it's mostly bad news right now. Again, whether that's out there or just in your own life and in your own world. Um, and it's prompted some people, one of my favorite people on television, John Krasinski, to start the SGN, the, the Some Good News Network, because we're like, hey, can we have something that makes us feel a little bit better given all of the, the wave of bad news that just seems to be coming. But I would suggest to you, even though I understand that, um, that we needed good news long before January 2020. Um, in fact, some of the statistics, and, and I read today that the number of deaths because of the COVID-19 virus has reached 160,000 around the world, and that is a staggering number. It's tragic, and it's not just a number. It is um, people's families, and, and many of you are starting to see or know someone who is either a frontline worker who's working in this and dealing with this and seeing it firsthand, or someone who has had this experience close to home. And so it's a terrible thing. But you may not realize that in that same time frame since January 2020, in the last three months, 10 times that number, 1.5 million children under the age of 15 have died. And that's just based on the statistics from the World Health Organization in 2017, 2018, and 2019, that every year about 6.5 million children under the age of 15 die of malnutrition and diseases for which we have had the cure for, most of which for about 20 years. And I could not find a single article about it. Ten times the number of children under the age of 15 in the same time frame. Not to mention the fact that uh, uh, emancipators, modern-day emancipators, say that there are 27 million people who are slaves right now around the world. 
uh, forced in the sex industry or just forced work, 27 million, which is more than we have ever had or ever known in human history, more than during the North Atlantic slave, slave trade of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and after that. And so I would submit to you that even if tomorrow across the, the front page of whatever it is you read, whatever digital publication, it said, good news, we have a vaccine for uh, the virus. Um, the economy is kind of bounced back and everybody gets their jobs back and kids are in school or whatever the good news would be, that it would not be enough. It's not to diminish what has happened and what we are dealing with as a world, but long before January 2020, we were a world in need of desperate, desperate need for good news. And that even if we found a vaccine, that would not be enough. We need more than that. Because even aside from these numbers, it brings up the realization, certainly in my own heart, that not only is all not right out there and there is sickness and virus and disease out there, there is in my heart as well. Because this number, this 1.5 million, this six and a half million children, that hasn't changed. That has been gone on year after year after year. And the reality is what I find in my own heart. Clearly, I don't care enough about it to be spending more of my time, more of my money, more of my life on it. That it reveals something in me that simply because this is closer to home, I worry more about it because it could affect my children whereas malnutrition and the other diseases that we have uh, cures for are not. And so it just doesn't seem to bother me as much. That actually tells me there's, something, there's some bad news going on even in my heart. And maybe you've experienced too that even this crisis and what we've lived through has revealed stuff inside of us the conflict we have with other people, the selfishness we have, the instinct to protect me and my own greed or whatever it is or the way that, um, that I can respond even with people that I love to push them away because I'm more concerned about what's going on with me. We realize there's lots in us. We need good news, much more than just a vaccine for a virus. And this, the bad news and the stuff that's going on existed long before January 2020. It's, what, it's why it, the, the writers of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, the four biographies of Jesus, called their accounts good news, which was um, from the Greek word euangelion, which transliterated gospel. It's where we get the word gospel from. It means good news. And we have four accounts, historical accounts of the life of Jesus, and the writers of those accounts chose to call them, them the good news of Jesus Christ. Not like a bit of good news or in this book there is some good news, but the good news about this person. And we're actually studying one of those biographies during this series that we're calling History Maker. Now, th these books um, actually belong in an ancient category of literature. They're not true, just sort of biographies, um, but they're also, what, are we good? Okay. Um, they're, they're not just biographies, but they're um, an ancient category of literature called bioi. And uh, they, they actually were told not just to describe the historical events, but actually the historical events surrounding a person. Ancient bioi often didn't have um, birth or death accounts because they tended to not be significant unless there was something significant about them. And so we are actually in this series where we are exploring the good news of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean that God has actually brought us good news? 
And you may be wondering, well, why, uh, why are we doing this now? Like, why kind of on the life of Jesus? Because our, our premise of this whole series is actually saying, no, this isn't just a history uh, look into his life as what they wrote about him 2,000 years ago. But his life has reverberated and has literally changed history and actually has changed and has the potential to change your story and my story, your life and my life. So we're journeying through this over the next few weeks. And one of the things we're going to do today is actually have some time near the end. My message is going to be a bit shorter. Don't cheer. You can save that for later. Um, but we're going to have some time for Q&R question and response. Response not being answered, but just I might say, I don't know, great question. But we're going to have a chance to do that. And so there's a number that you can text in um, that gives us those questions that you'll be able to, if you're, as things are coming up, because we understand for some of you this is new, or for some of you it may not be new, but it's bringing up questions as you're listening, and so we want to have a chance to go through that. Now, as we head into um, Luke's particular uh, uh, account of the good news of Jesus Christ, and that's actually a book we're journeying through, this whole series, there's a blog that we're writing, so if you've never read scripture before, or you're reading, but you want to read to kind of track with us what we're doing, we'd encourage you to do that. Um, that's, that's on our website. You can find every day there's readings, but also questions to help you begin to understand it more. Luke begins his account of the good news of Jesus Christ at the beginning of like, what is the beginning of this good news? And remember I said to you in ancient Bioi, they typically did not include accounts of the individual's birth or death unless there was something of tremendous significance in both of those things. And in the case of Jesus Christ, we know both in his birth and in his death, significant events that explained actually most of the rest of the story. And so that's why Luke actually begins here. And it's interesting, the passage that was read for you, you may, if you've been in church before, you've been in church at Christmas time and saying, oh yeah, that's, that's usually a Christmas passage. But why did we start there? In fact, why does Luke start there? And here's what the, um, he says, sort of the, the beginning of, you know, the good news. He's as an angel coming to the Virgin Mary says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you because she's like, well, what do you mean how that's going to happen? Like I'm a virgin. I'm not married yet. How am I going to be pregnant? The Holy Spirit um, will come upon you and the power of the Most High, again, that name Most High, which is the name referred to God, Most High, will overshadow you. In other words, a miracle is going to happen inside you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And so this is Luke's beginning of this account of good news. An angel coming to a virgin named Mary and the virgin thing comes up a couple of times because she's like, how's this going to happen? I have not uh, had sex with anyone. I am not married yet. Um, you know that, right, angel? And the angel says, yeah, this is not a normal thing. Even though you, a human, are going to become pregnant, the agent in this thing is God. And that's why twice he mentions the Most High. And, and, he, and then he says, therefore, this child will be holy, which means completely different, unlike any other, and will be called the Son of God. And so we find actually in this very uh, early account, Luke uh, is retelling this story that the angel came to Mary to say there's something about this child that is both human and divine. Human in the sense he will enter the world like every human being has entered the world through a, a woman's womb and into the world, birth. Okay, so he will be human, but this is not coming about like any other children have come to be born. God is actually the initiator, is doing a miracle inside you, 
And this life, therefore, is not just human, but also divine and will be called the Son of God. All of the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, begin with this in different ways. Matthew actually says it like this. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was Matthew, the Gospel writer. John says the Word, or God, became flesh. In other words, not only God with us, God became flesh. And another writer, not Mark, um, the Gospel writer, my friend Mark Daniel, says it this way, God in a bod. Um, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning, the good news in three words, God with us. Or John says, the word became flesh, that God actually became human. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. This is why they wrote about his birth and said, this child is both human and divine. And it is the miracle of saying God has actually Um, come into our world. God is with us. God has become flesh. God in a bod. And if we can say it this way, it means this. God is intervening in human history by inserting himself into human history. God is intervening in human history by inserting himself into human history. That's the account that Luke is describing for us. Now, if you were a Jewish person, or associated with Mary in some way, you would have, this would have been confusing news. Because even though Jesus was called a king, and they, they really needed a king, that was what they thought was the best news that they could possibly hear, was that a king was going to come to overthrow Rome, to defeat the Romans, to free them from being slaves to one empire or another for 400 years, give them back their political and their religious and their ethnic and their social identity as a people. And a military political um, monarch was going to do that for them. And that would be good news. And yet the good news is wrapped in this way that would have been confusing to them. Even, even in terms of how it came about. This is not actually what they expected, not actually what they thought was good news, that God was going to come into their world. Why, why is this good news? Why is this the beginning of the news? Why is God with us, God in the flesh, good news to us? I think mainly because we think about it this way, the prevailing views about God, both then and even now, are that God is uninterested in in what's going on in our world, that he is disconnected by sheer distance. We say God is up there, in a sense, and we are down here. And that he must be distracted. I mean, certainly he can't be concerned about the goings-on of my life when he's trying to deal with world peace or uh, you know, global warming or whatever it is. And there's a distance, therefore, not just sort of geographically, but many of us have felt like an emotional distance. And even the pictures we've had, either in our religious background or no religious background or a Christian background or whatever, that God was sort of up there and we were down here. And there was a distance there. And likewise, he is inaccessible. We, we cannot actually get up to him. And even many religions have this concept of, you know, prayer or incantation or meditation somehow, or even living rightly, morally, will somehow push the button so that we can get up to God, that somehow the stairway to heaven would allow us to get up to him. And yet, when Luke actually describes, and all the gospel writers describe this, that God, the good news is that God is intervening in human history by inserting himself into human history, it comes right at these things about God that we say, we think, and they're actually saying, those are lies. That's not actually true. That God has come into human history. God has come down into our world, 
shows us that by his own choice, that it wasn't that we climbed the stairway to heaven and managed to convince him that he chose to actually come down. In fact, if there is any stairway, it's a stairway from heaven, not a stairway to heaven, that God has actually come down to us. It says this, that God chose to enter our world, that God chose to enter our skin, not just to come to this world, but to become flesh, to cram his divinity into our skin, to become like us in that way, and to step into our shoes. That we cannot say God is distant or uninterested or inaccessible or that somehow if we are moral enough or religious enough or if we meditate enough or if we do all of the right things, we can ascend, we can get up to where he is. Know that God has actually not waited for us to get our lives together or to do it right and that religion is no ladder or stairway to heaven at all, but in fact, no, God has come down into our world. This is, this is good news from the beginning. You do not need to climb up to God. You do not need to have it all together and clean everything up like a, like a really honored house guest to make sure they can't come over until everything is perfect. No, he has come into our imperfect world himself. But it isn't just good news that God has become one of us, that God has chosen to become flesh. It was actually um, how he became flesh. Um, theologians note that in, in John's gospel, when he says the word or God became flesh, that, that John chose a word that he didn't choose the word anthropos, God became anthropos, which is human, or God became aner, which is man, but that God became flesh. And Bruxy Cavey in his book, Reunion, explains why this is so significant to us. He says this, John, the gospel writer, said, the word became flesh, which likely scandalized his first readers. The Greek word for flesh is sarx, a word so closely associated with our human frailty and brokenness that it is sometimes translated in the Bible as our sinful nature. But John didn't back away from this word choice and the potential misunderstanding. He thought it was so important to help people understand that God loves us, all of us, in all of our human weakness, that he said God became sarks. Through Jesus, God redeems rather than rejects what it means to be human. Through Jesus, God enters our brokenness, our weakness, our confusion, and our pain. God doesn't hover above it all like a deity whose glory is more important than his grace. And this is so beautiful and remarkable, and you will find actually in the Christian faith, this is unique to the story of Jesus. Many other religions and worldviews and stories of the universe and how human beings relate to God will often have gods entering the world, but they enter as gods with all of their powers and they wreak havoc sort of on the, on the humanity that's, that's around us. In the story of Jesus, we see God redeeming rather than rejecting what it means to be human. And ultimately, what that, we're saying that he didn't just um, become flesh, he became like us not just with skin on, but with our limitations, our frailty, our weakness, our temptations, our hardships, our experiences, our trauma, our abuse, and our pain. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus, you know, God becoming flesh, knows what it's like to be single? And he was a single person in a time and a culture when it wasn't cool or uh, it, it, was, it was weird 
for a man to be single. It meant that uh, probably no other family deemed him legitimate enough to marry their daughters off to him. He understood what it was like to work for his family. Most of his life on the earth was spent as a, a blue-collar man working in carpentry, the family business, trying to support his family. As I've said to you many times before, if anyone could say, oh, this job is below me, Jesus knows what it's like to feel like I was made for more, to labor away. He knows what it's like to face rejection, misunderstanding, abandonment, even, as you said, abuse and scorn and pain, and knows what it is like to feel excruciating physical pain unto even death. It wasn't just that God became human. You see, if you and I were given this opportunity, say the government said, hey, we're relocating you, or your job said, you know, we're relocating you to a new country or a new city or the city of your dreams, or you won the lottery or something, you can live anywhere you want, any kind of house, any kind of neighborhood, you know, have any kind of clothes you want, drive any kind of, you know, wrap yourself in whatever uh, humanity you think looks the best. We wouldn't choose neighborhoods that we felt were dirty or unsafe. We wouldn't choose a house that we felt was too small or things that made us look ugly. We would choose if we were given the choice to, to be the, in the best position, have the nicest place and the most, we would all do it, human nature. What does it mean that God, when he chose to come into our world, chose to come into the world like this? How humble, how gracious. C.S. Lewis said, if God was really going to put the world on his shoulders, he had to, like someone strong does when they have to lift something heavy, get down underneath it to feel the full weight of it and lift up with it on his shoulders. That's what God has done, gone to the depths of who we are, right to the core of what it means to be human in all of these things in order to lift us up. It's a beautiful picture of who God is, but the question is, why would he do this? Why? If this is all we had, we, we wouldn't know. We actually have the rest of the gospel story. And so actually the next few weeks are going to answer that question. I know that's, that's annoying. But it, actually th there is, there, there's so much more to say. The rest of the story says, why would God choose to enter? If this is what God, why is it good news? Not only what I've just said, but everything that's going to come after that. But there is one thing I think even within this that we could begin to understand in Luke's gospel as he starts his story of saying why. And, and the answer to this question is found in maybe the most unlikely place. If you've ever read the scriptures or tried reading the scriptures, there's always these sections where you begin to read and you're like, I'm lost or I'm bored. And one of those sections for me traditionally was these genealogies where they start listing whose son was who, like sort of born, you know, this person had this person, and you just like, blah, 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 blah. And for, I've been reading the scriptures for almost 40 years. I think I was reading by the age of four, somewhere around there. Um, and I never saw this before. And, and at the end of Luke's um, kind of account of the early years of Jesus, he has one of these genealogies. And if, you're, if you read it, you think, it doesn't mean anything. But at the end of it is something so profound. Look, at, here's what he said, okay? This is, you're not meant to be able to see this uh, well. It just says, Jesus was known as the son of Joseph, and Joseph was the son of. And it goes on for 15 verses, okay? The son of this person, who was the son of this person, all the way back in history. Who was the son of this person? Who was the son of, you're sleeping now, I know. The son of this person, all the way back to Enosh was the son of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Adam was the first human. I thought Jesus was the son of God. Why does Luke say that Adam was the son of God? 
Oh man, this is juicy stuff. Honestly, this is so good. This is actually an, an additional part of this good news that we cannot miss. Why, was, why does Luke say Adam was the son of God? What does it remind us of? He's reminding his readers who know, hey, there was a first man and a first woman created as children of God. And they were created, it says, if you read the very first few verses of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it says that human beings, Adam and Eve, man and woman, were created in the image of God. And that as they lived, they were meant to be people who reflected God. They were made to be like God in his image, not as in like God-like power or whatever. God is God. There is no one like him. But human beings were created in his image. In other words, that in his character, in his creativity, in his love, in his grace, in all of the ways that he interacted, they interacted with each other and with creation and with the world around them. They were supposed to be God-like in their character, in their ways, in, in what they reflected, that people would experience the love and the goodness and the creativity and the character of God as they interacted with men and women who imaged God to them. This was their purpose as human beings. And yet, if you know, they failed to do it. Their frailty and their failure got in the way of who they were meant to be. And that's not just true about them. It's true about me. It's true about you. You know there is a longing in you to be more than you are. There is a longing in you to reflect the beautiful character that you know you want to reflect, even if you didn't know that was God. But for those of you that do, you know this is, I want to be like God like that, not to have his power. I mean, we do want that. That's all the wrong ways we want him. But there's something in us that wants to be beautiful. There's something in us that wants to speak with kindness and grace, and yet the words landslide out of our mouths, and we try to get them back as we use anger, hate, manipulation, guilt, and all of that stuff. We're longing to be the human beings we know we were meant to be and we have hope that somehow we could be. That is the image of God created in us and yet we are just like Adam and Eve. We have failed and we are frail in our attempts to be perfectly human. Which is why when Jesus comes to earth, the title he gets, the title he is given is Son of of God. In a sense, the new son of God. And here is the good news. Jesus, the new son of God. He is not only who God has always been. He doesn't just show us who God has always been. He is who we were meant to be. In Jesus, we see God. Yes, this is who God has always been. How would God treat people? How would God handle money? How would God handle temptation? How would God handle being rejected? How would God handle someone who had offended him? How would God hand, uh, treat women and children? How would he lift them up? How would God do this? We can see in Jesus, this is who God has always been. But we also see, because he's not just the son of God, he is the son of man, he's a human being. We see who we were meant to be. Jesus is the new human this is why this is all good news. Not just this is who God has always been, but this is who you and I were meant to be. Not only do we have a distorted picture of who God is and we needed Jesus to show us who he really was, we have a distorted image of ourselves. And we needed Jesus to show us this is what humanity fully alive looks like. And that's why God become flesh. God with us is such good news. Not just that God has become like us, but that we can become like him. And the New Testament writers, 
after the gospel began to write, this is the hope, this is the beautiful thing. God is actually making you more like him. He is restoring the image that has been defaced and marred, that is frail and weak. He is restoring you to the person you were meant to be, which is what Jesus looks like. The good news is not only that God has become like us, but that we can become like him. Now, as I said, I want to just kind of pause here as we come to the end of this message today and, and give some time for questions. Um, and so as you're thinking about those questions, and maybe they've come up for you as you're listening, I encourage you to text those in. Um, I want you to listen to a song that John and Michelle are going to sing for us. It just, it, the words are, love came down. It's actually just a beautiful reflection of what it means that God has come down to our world, that God has become one of us. And so listen, and after that, we'll take up a couple of questions, and then we'll close. Well, as we close here, I wanted to take a few minutes to answer some of your questions. Lots of them came in. Thank you so much. We don't have time for all of them, but we'll keep a, a list for sure. Um, one of the questions that came up, why, what is God's purpose in creating humans in the first place? Like, why do all this? And, and maybe that's a question, you know, when we think about how much trouble there is in the world um, for us as humans individually, but like, if, if God was going to have to send his son, if he was going to have to come into our world and die, why would he do this? Um, you know, and I think just going back to um, that whole idea of God putting humans on the earth and helping them image him, I think at the core of the, the creation story or God's purpose was relationship. Um, the scriptures actually describe, and, and Christian faith for centuries has affirmed this idea that God, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you may have heard that, or some of you know that's called the Trinity, that's God in relationship, in a sense, that God is one, but somehow a plurality of persons in one being, that God is in relationship. And every relationship, in a sense, that is perfect in love overflows um, in, in love outward. And so one of the things we know for sure is that God, because he is truly love, love is expressed um, and love overflows. Love is something that is like a fountain at the height of joy. It actually overflows. We see this biologically in a sense that even human beings are created out of a love between a man and a woman, that out of love, um, uh, not only is a being created, but a being is created for a relationship. And that being immediately when they come out of the room craves intimacy and relationship with the parents and the parents with them and that that's how it's supposed to happen. And so I think at the core of this is saying God loves us so much that he wanted to, to be in relationship with us. And then we say, okay, but what about all the chaos that kind of resulted from it? Um, why did God create us if he knew we were going to choose to make a mess or we hurt each other or whatever? And I think implicit in the idea of relationship is free will, is, is choice, is if you, know, if you lose a massive poker bet with somebody and you don't have the money to pay them and they say, okay, well, just marry me, you know, and that, you know, that, that, is that love? Like if you're expressing value and say, oh, I love you, it's like, no, I just lost a bet, I have to, right? I, I, I hadn't chosen to be with you. Like love, uh, to be true, has to be chosen. And so God giving us free will, making himself known to us, um, in, in relate to, and giving us the choice to be in relationship. I think so one of the purposes and why we were made is to know God, is to be in relationship and experience his love. And then I think obviously now our purpose as it carries out, even in, in the midst of this broken world, as human beings, even though God is God alone and he, Jesus, is the one who, God, who became flesh, he then gives us the calling or the purpose in life 
to enter into the world as he did, intimately, relationally, by being physically present in the world. And the New Testament church ever since then has seen its calling and its purpose as saying, well, we don't know what if human beings hadn't chosen and all this stuff, but we know now we live in a broken world and we are meant to live in it the way Jesus did. We are meant to be intimately connected in love with the people around us and the brokenness around us and be agents of healing in the same way that Jesus has. Jesus actually said to his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, I send you. And so there's lots more, I think, to that question, but that's um, at the heart of that. The second one, why does Jesus always refer to himself as the Son of Man? Yeah, if you're, if you're going to go on and read not only Luke, but the rest of the Gospels, you'll find the title Jesus used most often. Other people will call him Son of God at times. The title he used for himself most often was Son of Man. And this is actually, uh, if, if uh, any Jew, which was the context Jesus was in, it would have reminded them of a book, uh, Daniel, that was in the Old Testament. And at the end of that book, there was this, Daniel has this, um, he was sort of, Israel's one of um, their, their sort of prolific and famous leaders. He had a vision of um, one day God was going to restore the world through this son of man, through a, a someone that was going to come that was going to bring justice and healing and redemption and all of the things that they needed. Um, to happen. <clears throat> and so Jesus, in a sense, borrows that title <clears throat> and yet so often is kind of elusive about what it means. People will say, well, what do you mean? Like, are you, are you saying, are you the son of man or are you a son of man as in every person is a son of a human in that sense? And so Jesus almost lives between these tensions in the same way that we have described today, that he was a son of, he was human, and yet he was subtly, and, and, and over time as the rest of his life played out, they started to realize, no, he's also saying, I am the son of man. I am the one who is coming. Now, Daniel's vision didn't have any kind of understanding that God would become human, God would become a flesh, which is why the Jewish religious leaders were so upset that he was claiming to be God. Um, because they're like, that's not, God doesn't become human. So this wasn't ever in sort of the Jewish consciousness of how this would happen. So Jesus comes in and uses a title that almost creates the tension between the two. He was human and they knew kind of in a sense who his parents were. And yet he did things and said things that they said, this is like no other human we have ever heard in terms of his teaching, in terms of his love, in terms of his power, in terms of his character. And then of course, in terms of his death and resurrection. So son of man was that sort of all encompassing title that both was saying, yes, I am flesh. I am like all of you in that sense, and yet I am also the Son of Man. There's lots more questions. We don't have time to get into them, but, I, uh, but I'm glad that you've sent them in, and we're trying to figure out if we're going to do Q&A for the subsequent weeks coming. But I just want to leave you with something as you think about, okay, what, what does this mean for me? Where do I go from here? <clears throat> and even how do I journey through uh, this series that we're in called History Maker? And doing that you know, through our sermon series, through being um, on the blog, <clears throat> or being in a home group. For some of you, you may say, you know, the question is, have you lost sight of who God is? You know, whether because the, the religion you grew up with, their teaching, or just maybe you're, you are a follower of Jesus, but you're in this season where you're like, I can't see him. And this has been a, I don't know about you, but this has been a disorienting season for many of us. There's a fog. And so if you feel like, God, I, I'm having trouble seeing you or hearing you, ask Jesus for a new or true picture of himself. If he's the one who shows us who God has always been and still is, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Ask him, say, okay, I, I'm having a hard time. As you go through Luke, as you go through this series, as you pray, um, ask him for a new or true picture of himself. And for those of you who say, I've lost sight of me. 
You know, I'm disoriented with who I'm meant to be, my purpose in life. I'm disappointed with who I have become. I'm, I'm upset. I feel guilty about the past choices I made or whatever. This is the beautiful good news of Jesus that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. He creates in us a, a, a whole new person, new people. And so ask Jesus for a newer, true picture of who you were made to be. If he is actually the picture of true humanity, saying, God, give me a new vision of the me you are creating to me, me to be that you made me to be. And so I just want to bless you with that. I want to bless you with a courageous prayer like that, whether you feel like you've lost sight of God or you've lost sight of who you are, that as you go through this series, you would get a fresh, a true, a new picture, not only of who God has always been, but who you were meant to be.